Well, hey, as we get started, we're going to James chapter 3. So make your way to James chapter 3. There are handouts in the back if you missed it. They're just in the back corner chairs there. You can grab those. And we will get started this morning. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12 is where we're going. You've probably heard of the Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Telltale Heart. You may, have, you may have read that or studied that in school. And you may have heard of the phrase, a tattletale. Someone who runs around and tells the secrets of others and says, hey, actually what's going on over there, that's happening. My children are all between the age of two and nine. So we experience that reality in our household maybe more than some. But the idea of a telltale actually comes from this idea of someone who knows the secrets of others and they either heedlessly, not thinking about it, or on purpose, maliciously, expose those secrets to other people. That is a telltale. That's what's happening. And this morning, we're going to see that our tongues are actually a telltale. Our tongues are the telltale of what's going on in our own hearts. And they're going to show us our heart condition. James is continuing this reality of a mirror being placed in front of you, evaluating you. Is your faith real? And if it's real, what does it look like? And he's going to continue that expose of our hearts used by the use of the tongue. We're going to see three truths of the tongue this morning. The first is going to be the uses of the tongue. The second is going to be the power of the tongue. And the third is going to be the control of the tongue. So by context, where we are in James, last chapter, chapter 2, we settled the idea of faith is by grace alone and Christ alone, and then faith that is true, faith that is in Christ by grace alone will produce good fruit. It will work. And so as we're coming into chapter 3, we're going to see, well, what does your faith look like by the way that you use your tongue? And that's where we're going because your tongue is going to tell on your heart. The theme of today is the power and force of our tongue is driven by our desires. And it's clearly demonstrating our faith. The power and force of the tongue is driven by our own desires and it clearly demonstrates our faith. Our text is chapter 3 of James verses 1 to 12. Let's read it together as we get started. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. As we dive into God's word, let's get started by prayer and we'll get going. Lord, your, the truth of your word is looking back at us right now. And before we even start the process of seeing where we can grow, we need to pause and realize that the truth is that without you working in our dead hearts, showing us who you are, showing us our sin and prompting regeneration through faith alone by your son, Jesus Christ alone as a gift alone so that no man may boast by works. If that had not happened, then we would still be dead in our sins and would have no hope. So Lord, we praise you this morning for salvation. And we also praise you this morning for this book of James, which does such an awesome job helping us in our sanctification, evaluating our process, our progress of living out the truth of your word and a life that you have saved and changed. Lord, we praise you this morning. Help us to ingest your word, to look deeply into it and to live in it and to be changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to our first point, which is the uses of the tongue. This is chapter, this is verses one and two of chapter three. It says, let not, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. I'll pause right there. The first use of the tongue is it can teach. When you think of how the word and how everything is exposited and given and it's happening through someone speaking, it's what we're doing right now. Right, so this idea of let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, that's talking about the specific office of someone gifted to teach and teaching in church with authority. That's specifically the context of what it's talking about. And it says not to dissuade people from pursuing that office. If God has gifted you and you have that ability, then he wants you and desires that you would then go use your gifting and employ it in the service of the church. So he's not trying to dissuade someone. He is trying to say, be careful. Be careful because when you teach, the word is coming from you and it's going out and it's impacting those who hear it, right? So quick question, what happens when God's word is twisted and it's taught and people hear it? What can happen? People can be led astray. What can happen to the gospel? It's diluted. It could be falsified. People be lied to. And that, that, the weight of that is an eternal weight. Y'all see that, right? It's, it's an eternal weight. What we say has much impact on those around us. And not only those around us, when you teach, are we encouraged in God's word to preach God's word to ourselves, to teach to ourselves what's supposed to be right and what we're supposed to be thinking about? Yes, we are. You don't have to worry about like, is that a binary question, 50% chance? I'll answer it for you. Yes, you are supposed to, right? You are. But can you repeat false things to yourself, a narrative that's not true and convince you that you're okay when you need to repent instead? Can you do that? Yes. The danger of the tongue can be silent. It can be internal too. The tongue can teach, but beware. We're held accountable to the words. Teachers in the office of teacher are held to a stricter judgment. But James does that does not mean then that other people that teach God's word, like Sunday school, parents, 
commanded by Scripture to instruct our children, that's teaching them, they're not held to no judgment. We're all pushing God's word in some way, degree, or pulling it into ourselves in some degree, one way or another. So be warned. Let not many of you become teachers. In the context of James's time, many were trying to become a teacher for the sake of pride. They were coming out of Judaism where the rabbis held all kinds of glory in the community and it was, a, it was enticing. I want to be at that level. I want people to respect me. It was, a, it was an idea. Um, and so he said, hey, be careful. Don't pursue it for the, the uh, worldly benefits. Pursue God's word and to teach in that office because you've been gifted and qualified in that. But not only official teachers, I mentioned parents and I mentioned mentors and friends, but also in the Great Commission, disciplers, missionaries, they're supposed to go and do what? To do something to the folks that are listening to them so that they would observe. What are they supposed to do? Matthew 20, 18, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, first word, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So James' point is to call to moment that we're all teaching God's word in some capacity as you serve, some in an official capacity, and they are held to a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. They must give an account. But everybody is teaching God's word in God's economy in some way, shape, or form, either to yourself or to others, Sunday school, all kinds of ways. Be careful, but be encouraged. It can be taught. That's how God has asked us to get the word out. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's good, just be careful. But not only does the word teach or the tongue teach, but the, the tongue also guides and what does it mean by guide? We'll go back to our text. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now James calls it, beginning part of verse 2, he says, We all stumble in many ways. And that is true. No one is perfect. Although just in the latter part of that verse, he says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, again, the tongue is in focus, what he says. He is a perfect man. Now we know that Christ Jesus is the only perfect man that has ever lived, the God-man, fully God, fully man. He is perfect. So in this context, James is using that not in that setting, but in the setting of maturity, in the setting of you can grow. And I was greatly encouraged when I looked at this, like, yeah, you can grow. So question as you evaluate your hearts, look over the journey of your faith that God has prompted. Has your tongue become more a speaker of love and truth and encouragement than where it was before you were saved? Have your words shifted? Has your lexicon changed? Is your heart softer towards others? The idea that is, yes, be encouraged, it has. God is working in every single one of us to do that. And so we can become closer and closer and closer and more and more mature in how we use our tongue. And it says, if that man is able to be mature, and no longer stumble as often in what he says, he's able to bridle the whole body as well. And there's our word bridle again. James keeps coming back to this usage of bridle. It means to restrain. It can't, we first saw it in James chapter 1, verse 26. He's talking about someone who had false religion there. He said, if you're unable to bridle your tongue, you're deceived, your heart is deceived. This idea is, can you hold it in restraint? Not can you stop it from speaking, 
but can you actually restrain what is being said? And can you control that? And that's the idea of restraint. So it's this idea that maturity is God's plan. He wants us to grow. He wants us to get better at that. He's empowering us through the Holy Spirit that indwells you to get better at that. Your speech can be refined. 1 Peter 3.10 says, The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. It's not saying, doesn't say anything. Who restrains it, who holds them in check, who controls them is wise. We can grow in our faith. We can be more mature. If our speech is in more mature, then our actions become more mature because James tells us we can bridle and guide the entire body as well. And we see a great example in our Lord himself. And this is coming from 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 23, to receive, if you can restrain your tongue, you can restrain your whole body. And this is what it says. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 23, it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Restraint of the tongue. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's our hope. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Restrain your tongue and see the growth that God has for us. In Philippians chapter 1, 6, he's promised to complete us as he brings us closer and closer until the day of Christ Jesus. So rest in that. And consider the possibilities on the good side of the use of your tongue, of how you can restrain it, you can grow. And what can happen is you encourage and speak the truth in love more and more often around the body. Now I have to tell you, we're departing from the positive side of the message now. We're going straight into then, well, what about where James is going? And then it's the second point we're going into, what's the power of the tongue? How can this thing be utilized in a way that we need to understand very clearly so that we can make great decisions as we follow Christ and as we speak. So this is our second point, which is the power of the tongue. And James gives us three illustrations that we can explore to truly understand the power of speech. This is verse 3 to 6. It says, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Our first illustration is horses and bits. Do I have any equestrian experts in the audience today? People that have worked around horses and been on horses? Yep, they didn't say anything, but I saw them out there. Y'all are terrific. So yes, I do. I grew up around horses. I know about that. What does the bridle and the bit do for a horse? You can either know this from experience or just go back to verse 3. It tells you, what does it do? It guides them, it controls them, because if you're on the horse, and this is what everybody looks like when they're on a horse, when you're on a horse, right, you have the reins in your hand, and you pull, it pulls their head, and they turn, and they are trained. You can control this massive animal. 
If you think about horses, there's something that, I don't know, the stereotypical masculine man likes to think is under the hood of his car, and it's horsepower. And you think about, well, where did horsepower as a term even come from? It came from the actual utilization of a large animal to do mechanical engineering things. That's for you, Ben, engineering. I said engineering. Okay. And so we do that, right? So the horse does that. In medieval ages, the horse was an awesome, fearsome machine in battle. It was armored up. It would run straight through, stomp all over people. They had metal things on their hooves, and it was just this fearsome beast. The horse is powerful, but it's controlled by leather straps and a small piece of metal about like that. That's the power that's under control by something small is the point of that illustration. And then you go to ships and rudders, right? You think of ships. Now, the Old Testament Israel, where James was from, they weren't a seafaring people. Now, Solomon did get ships to go out and come back, but he was the only one that really did that. But they knew that these ships would go across these large oceans, these large bodies of water, and bring amazing treasures back, things that they'd never seen before, things that they couldn't get at home. And they're impressed by that. And then we saw in Paul's time that even ships got so large that they had 276 sailors on board. When you look at Acts, they were, okay, that's a lot of people. In today's time, you look at an aircraft carrier, they have like over 3,000 people on that ship. It's a city. Not to mention all the equipment, everything that's there. Those are huge, powerful things driven by nuclear reactors. They're huge. But they're steered by something small, the rudder. It's still a small piece of the ship, even today, made out of metal, not wood. Okay, great, but it's small in comparative relative size. And the point is, don't think about the strong winds that push those ships around on the ocean. Think about the rudder. The rudder is what tells the ship to go port or starboard. It's my best, right? That's what's telling it to do. And the rudder is controlled by who? The pilot, a human, a person. James is getting closer. He's telling you that, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this stuff's not outside of me. Maybe it's inside of me. And so let's look at our third illustration. Fires and sparks. This is verse 5 and 6. I'll read it again just so we see it all. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. I'll pause right there. James is now moving to describe the tongue in an illustration of fires and sparks, all right? Fires and sparks. And he says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Now, some of you all are from the West Coast and you experience these wildfires that happen, but one that's more current than that, have you all been following the Canadian wildfire trip across west to east that's been going on in north, the country north of us? I work where there are some offices up in upstate New York and they actually had to close them one day because the smoke was so bad, the air conditioning units in the office couldn't handle it. So they said, y'all go home, work from home. We can't keep up right now. We have to put more stuff. It was that bad in New York. And they said, it, when you looked outside, it was this weird, eerie, orange, gray glow. It just looked like something out of a horror film, you know, just out of Armageddon. And the power of that fire starts by just a smark as of June 7th, I looked it up, 3.8 million hectares. And you think, what's a hectare? It's 2.47 acres. And now you can feel like you know more facts, right? So it's about 10 million acres of forest that have been consumed just this year in that Canadian wildfire burn. And if you think to put it into perspective, that's about 6% of Texas. We're big state. 
6% of Texas, so I thought that's not impressive enough. So I'm from Oklahoma, so I went to Oklahoma. It's 20% of Oklahoma. And that's, that's not big enough. And I thought, okay, great, North Texas. It's two North Texases. If you think of all of North Texas, that's how much forest has burned just because of a fire. Don't miss the power of a spark and fire. Now, we already looked at all the things that a tongue boasts of because it boasts of great things. It's not all bad. The tongue can boast of the gospel, but James has taken us to the negative side because he wants us to see the danger that it has in our lives and us to be very aware of it and to do something about it. So he's going to stay on the negative side, the destructive side, as we go through this. And he adds a little bit more detail to this illustration of James's, of our tongue as a fire, as a spark to set a great forest of flame. That's true. But now he gives us verse 6. And so let's look at that. It says, see how great a forest is set among, set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And at the, that middle part of verse 5, it says, see how great a forest is set aflame. It's this exclamation point of behold, look, pay attention. This is huge, the danger of this thing that resides in your mouth. It can cause a lot of damage. There's a quote from the commentator Curtis Vaughn that says this, the tongue, it can sway men to violence or it can move them to the noblest actions. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing and soothe the dying. Or it can crush the human spirit, destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate and bring nations to the brink of war. A little bit more current in our history, we've seen some things in Texas alone, phrases that are powerful, that move people. If I were to say, remember the, you would say Alamo, right? And that, just, just those three words invoke a whole bunch of passion and story and reality and, and really rallied a, a non-state to become a state and fight off an invading army, right? I mean, that's a big one. If I were to say a day that lives in infamy. You would know that. Why? Because Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and it got us into World War II. The words that we speak have impact. And then not only impact in that moment, but impact hundreds, 500, thousands of years later because of what is said. It's important that we understand the power of the tongue. But we're not done exploring. Let's walk through verse 6 together and see all these descriptions that James gives us of the tongue. The first descriptions he gives us in verse 6 is the tongue is a fire. He's very clearly now looking at this negative cause of great stumbling that lives within us and he pronounces it. It is a fire. You think about what a fire does or a bonfire. It consumes. I mean, what's left after a raging bonfire? smoldering embers, ash, it consumes. What stops a fire from consuming? Only if it runs out of fuel or air. So if we continue to give it oxygen, we continue to give it fuel, it will not be stopped. It'll just keep running. That's what a fire does. That's what our tongue is. It is a fire. It wreaks havoc. It tears down. It explodes. It kills. It ruins. It savages. That's exactly what it does. And our tongue is a fire. 
Not only is it a fire, but another description given is it's the very world of iniquity. This idea of world in the Greek is not the cosmos or the universe. It's used by that often, but this one's used as a whole collection of parts. If you wouldn't gather every single part of all of one thing and put it all together and you held it, that's what that word is, whole. And, it's, and that world, it's that world of what? What's the word after that? The world of iniquities. It's the world of iniquity. Your tongue my tongue is a world of iniquity. It means it has at its disposal anything it wants to do to choose to sin, it's got it. It's right there. And we know that. We can choose to be angry. We can choose to be hurtful. We can choose to be silent. We can choose to do all. Those are all right there, just within an instant's choice. That's how powerful our tongue is. It's a world of iniquities. But not only does it have all the capability in the world to sin, the next description is it's set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It's set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. The tongue is a defiler. Now, we have to understand what that means. The tongue is a defiler. Am I talking about just this fleshly piece of us that resides in our mouth and helps us articulate speech? No. It is the mechanism, the means that gets words out vocally or holds them back, yes. But where does our tongue get its words? It gets them from our hearts. Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23 puts it this way. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual morality Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So now we know that it's not this fleshly part of us that we're really talking about. It's the means, it's the mechanism, yes, and it's quick. But God's really telling us it's our hearts. That's where the source of the defilement comes from. So yes, it is said among our members as that which defiles the body because it tells on our hearts. It shows us what's in our hearts at that moment, but it doesn't just defile, it defiles the entire body. And what does that entire body mean? I'm gonna use a, an illustration from our past, maybe a happy one, I'm sorry to ruin it. Have you ever been around a campfire? Think about that, you're around a campfire and maybe you're camping for a couple days or a week. Awesome. So you've got your jeans and your sweatshirts and your t-shirts and all those things. And you're out there and every night you make a fire. And then you move to the next campsite. A few days later, you make another fire. You're always making these fires. What happens to your clothes after that trip? They smell like smoky. And maybe you put them in the fire because you're done with those, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's what happens, right? Yes, that smoke has penetrated not just has that fire consumed all the fuel you gave it, but the impact of that fire has gone well beyond its borders of the fire pit. The smoke has penetrated everything. I hope no one's ever had to like have a house fire, but if you have, you've experienced that then everything in that room, even if you put it out quick, everything in that room is now permanently damaged. You're not getting that smoke smell out. It's not happening. You're gonna have to either deal with the smoke smell or get rid of that stuff and get new stuff. That's what James means by it defiles the entire body. It goes much further than just that word spoken in that initial cut. It goes much further. 
It defiles the entire part of you. Any part is there to be defiled by the power of our tongue, which is speaking out of our hearts. Now, that's not the last description we have. The next one is the tongue sets on fire the course of our life. It sets on fire the course of our life. So we know our entire life can be consumed by the power of the tongue to defile. But we often might think it's just in that moment someone said something harsh to me and I have to deal with it in that moment and I have way, okay. But do those barbs and cuts of the tongue go away a few seconds later? No, we remember them. They create scars, they create hurts. They follow you all the way through your life. Now, God has very clearly commanded us to forgive. And when forgive means we forget, we're not holding against him, but we still have that memory. We still have that hurt. And that's if it's against us. What about when it's us going out and we're the ones speaking? The tongue can make impressions that are unable to be erased. You think about the first time you meet someone, that first impression, it's so crucial that it needs to be a good one, right? And there are studies that have been said, like how many times does it take to erase a first bad impression? How many times? And the study says eight. I'm like, I'm not sure how you figure that out, but the study says eight. It takes eight times to erase a first bad impression. But you know, like the sub, like asterisk PS on that study says, but many people say that you can never erase that first bad impression. Like, well, that's a helpful thought. That, just think about it. That's... That's the power of your tongue. It sets on fire the course of our entire lives and it will follow you, that damage, if we don't restrain it, if we don't hold it in check. That's what the tongue does. And we talked about fires and how they will continue to burn as long as they're combustible material and oxygen. It won't stop. It'll just keep going. And it moves beyond just us into every aspect of life. And we've looked at that. The last description that James gives us in verse 6 is that the tongue is set on fire by hell. It's set on fire by hell. And this is a culmination phrase that James is using about the potential damage of the tongue. And it refers to that Greek word hell as Gehenna, and it's referring to the valley of Hinnom in Israel. And in ancient times, that was where the false god Moloch would have worship services and they would sacrifice children to him. And so because of that, the Israelites said, we're never going to use that valley for anything good. And it became a refuse heap. They put their trash there. It was their garbage dump. And they burnt it all the time to keep it reduced. Dead bodies from disease would be tossed there. The carcasses from the sacrificial system would be taken there. And everything was burned. So when James is using this, he's using this and he's seeing in his heart and his head that place where it's just constantly on fire, it's full of evil, it's full of refuge, it's full of everything bad. And that's what he means by it's set on fire by hell. Jesus in Mark chapter nine said it this way, verse 43 and 44, he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than, who, than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. James is saying that our tongue is primed to be used for every evil that Satan can come with. It's just right there and it's ready to consume and it's ready to burn and it's ready to tear apart. That is the power of the tongue. And because of that power, the psalmist says this in Psalm 55, verses 20 to 21. He says, my companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. 
His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. And in Psalm 64, 3, he says it this way, hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. This is the power of the tongue. Is anyone thinking I want to remove that piece of flesh from my mouth and just get rid of it right about now? I was like, that thing's terrible, right? But we already know that it's not the flesh of our tongue that's evil, that has the power to do these things. Jesus taught us, it, already, it comes out of our hearts. So the next question is, how do I even control this thing? What do I do? And that's our third point. What do I do? I look to control it. In verses 7 to 12, James tells us how that can happen. How can we control this tongue? In verse 7 it says, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. I'll pause there. Verse 7 tells us very clearly that man has been given dominion to tame and control all of the beasts of the earth. He's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in our recent times where we see this, I say recent because I'm not sure if it still happens, but the circus when I grew up would come through Dallas-Fort Worth and you see it, Barnum and Bailey's. And what, that was amazing to see what those people could do with wild creatures that probably wanted to eat them, but they would control them. And as a kid, you're mesmerized. Elephants doing acrobatics, you know, all kinds of things happening. Man has been given dominion over the earth. But verse eight says, but no one can tame the tongue. We've been not been given dominion over that. Why? James tells us it is a restless evil. This is the idea of a caged deadly animal or more Texas illustration like a coiled up rattlesnake on a path and you're walking up to it and it senses you and it gets real tight and it's ready. And that thing is just vibrating with energy to strike in a split second and to do what with its venom? It's not only a restless evil, but full of deadly poison. It's ready to strike and kill. That is the tongue. That's what it's doing. And so how do we control that instant impact of evil? And in and of ourselves, mankind finds the tongue very uncontrollable. And you see that in verse 9. We get this example of something that is completely and wildly unthinkable that it would happen. And what does it say in verse 9? It says that with our tongue, I have to go back, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Consider that extreme example. On one side of your mouth comes praise to God. On the other side of the mouth, you're destroying the very creation that God made that caused him to say it is very good, made in his image. That is how uncontrollable the tongue is. But I don't want you to lose heart. So the question then comes, how can we experience control over the tongue? How can we do that 
We, of course, have to be on guard, on guard against it. But remember, the entire purpose of this book is to show the effects of true saving faith. And the entire purpose of this chapter, this first half of the chapter, is to have your tongue tell on your heart condition. That's the entire point. So for a man or woman, for people to, to, include, to be able to control their tongue, the only way that can be done is if you have a changed heart. That's the only way. Because Jesus told us it's not the tongue that defiles, it's the heart that defiles. So only God can tame the tongue with a changed heart. And we know that every humankind, every man is guilty of sin. James in chapter 2 said that if you break one part of the law, you stumble and you become guilty of it all. James chapter 2 verse 10. Romans chapter 3, 23, we know this verse maybe by heart. It says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. They've sinned and fallen short of the glory. So man on his own cannot change his heart. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of that sin is death. We face eternal just punishment for our sins. But there's hope because Christ came. And the rest of verse 23 of chapter 6 exists. It says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So for anybody that repents of their sins, sees their sin the way God sees it, and repents of it and places their faith in Christ, then he promises and does execute a regeneration of someone's heart for now their heart not only is new, like in Ezekiel 36, it says, it's a clean heart. You've been given from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It is a transformation that only God can do. And when that takes place, not only do you have a new heart, but he gives you the Holy Spirit as a gift that indwells you. And not only does he indwell you, but he does his work. Thankful for the Holy Spirit. He restrains from sin and he empowers you to do God's work and he gifts you to be able to do it. That heart can control the tongue. That heart can have the capacity to control, to restrain, to hold back what it, and choose what you want to say. And so with the truth of regenerated heart and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can look at what it is to have a controlled tongue. But James in verses 10 to 12 is going to call us to task before we can look at that. In verses 10 to 12, he gives a set of unthinkable, unnatural comparisons. And so what does he say there? He says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. James is very clearly talking to believers now. He says, my brethren, twice in those couple verses. He's saying, but there's some things that happen out there when we use our tongue that are unnatural. And he gives us a few examples. He says, coming from a water fountain, fresh and bitter water, from the same source, can that happen? No, physiologically it cannot. But yet we bless and curse at the same time. Because we err, we all stumble in many ways. That's unnatural. He says, that ought not to be this way. Fig trees producing olives. No, that is not supposed to happen. That ought not to happen. What about vines producing figs? No, vines produce grapes, people. That's not supposed to happen. And we're not supposed to bless God and curse men in the same venue, right, ever. It's unnatural. It ought not to be this way. So God is very clearly calling us to the book of James to evaluate our hearts because even salt water producing fresh, he says, no, that ought not to be. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says it this way, verses 33 to 37, as we evaluate our hearts, he says, 
Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He's talking to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so that's where we find what we can positively do to control the tongue. It's out of that which fills the heart. So question this morning, how can a believer make progress at controlling their tongue? What are things we can do that will help us with that? We can meditate on God's word, not just once, but daily, throughout the day. Yeah, what else? We can pray, yes, in all kinds of ways, right? We can pray to be helped with this, to have the strength of this, to have wisdom to say what we need to say and the right ways to say it. We can also pray for others. Yeah, good, what else? Accountability, we can have others help us invite others into our lives. Is that not a scary thing? Like, hey, I struggle with this. I sin in an area. Please come with me into this and help. But is that not exactly what God tells us to do in his word? Yes. What else? Mm, Going back to James chapter one, we can be slow to speak. Yes, restraint. There's a lot of answers to this question and I have like two minutes, so... Psalm 11911, how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, right? We hide God's word in our hearts. Memorization is another great way to do it. Because if you're dwelling and meditating on God's word, how do you do that? I have a pocket Bible or I have a digital Bible. Yes, good. But if you have it in your heart, now you can really tear it up. In the book, Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes, some guys in my small group were reading that. And he says, to meditate is this idea of you have these core, awesome passages of scripture that really just ring your bell. They, they, just, they light your heart on fire with encouragement to conviction and reality and truth. And he suggests things like the Lord's Prayer. Is that not always helpful to read? And like, oh, that is exactly right. Or the 10 Commandments, or maybe passages of the New Testament that just light you up, like Romans chapter six. It's like, I don't have to submit my members to sin anymore. I'm gonna revel in that. Those passages are there, and he says, meditate on it. And he even goes to the sake of just mutter. Like, just mutter to yourself. I mean, if you were around other people and you're muttering things, okay, choices. But, but mutter to yourself. Say it out loud, right? Say it out loud to yourself. Wrestle in it. That's how we influence and instruct our own hearts so that we can restrain and restrict our tongues. Ephesians 4.29 is a direct verse that tells us exactly what our tongues should be doing. So if you want the right answer, it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. If you want to see another example of what our lives should be, you can go to Matthew chapter 5 verses 44 and 45, where Jesus exposes and says, you've heard it said you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor and pray for your enemy, recognizing that God's common grace is given to them too. They are his creation. So we make progress with our tongues by prayer, by memorization of scripture, by meditation 
of Scripture. But we're not also left alone. There's a young lady in the back that said accountability. So everybody turn to Colossians chapter 3. That gives us a really good set of examples of how we should be using our tongues. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 17. We'll take the 30 seconds to read it together. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 17. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you not see the use of the tongue there? You were complaining. Someone's complaining against you and instead you're forgiving the use of the tongue. I love that. We're keeping going in verse 14. It says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If I'm gonna, I'll read verse 17 in just a minute, but singing is what we're about to go do in the next hour as we praise our Lord and Father. And we don't just have to sing in church. You can sing with our families. We can sing with each other. That's another use of the tongue. And then verse 17 says, whatever you do in the word, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And you think, thinking, Drew, that's great. That sounds like a lot that I need to do. And it is a lot that you need to do. And I want you in this space of going, well, where do I get the ideas and thoughts to do that? And then I want you to go back to James chapter 1, verse 5 which we studied a few Sundays ago, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. And that tees up even what we're gonna go next Sunday is an expose of then what is wisdom in God's word. But where we need to go is we'll summarize. We looked at three uses of the tongue today, three truths. The first is its uses. It can teach. Be careful what it says. It has impact. The second we looked at was the power of the tongue and sparks and forest fires that are unstoppable until it runs out of oxygen and fuel. And thirdly, we looked at the control of the tongue. And the key takeaway there is it is powerful, but its source is your heart. It's my heart. And I can influence my heart through the gospel for someone that hasn't repented of their sins and for someone that claims Christ as their savior through his word, I can have a changed and continually refined heart. So folks, I have three things to ask of you as we close. Is number one, evaluate your hearts. I took us to Matthew chapter 12 a few minutes ago and verse 35 says this, the good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure, what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Verse 37, for by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. So evaluate our hearts. Another one is to renew our minds like we talked about, continue that process, dive deep into God's word and renew our minds and how we think in the last comes from Psalm 41, verse 3. It says to guard your tongue. Put some restraints there and think actively about that. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this expose of the tongue, for the reality that we have a tell-tell tongue inside of us that shows us the condition 
of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use the truth of your word to convict, to encourage, to strengthen, to admonish, and to provide wisdom to us as we walk forward out of here, having looked at James chapter 3 this morning. I pray for the fellowship that we're about to experience, that it would be sweet, and that it would be a propellant on our Christian journeys this morning to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.